With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to that Christian geeky couple from Boise, Idaho. This is Adam. And Andrea Graham. And uh, we're going to go ahead and continue our journey through the history of uh, River Song and her timeline. And we have the two-parter, the time of angels, and... Uh, flesh and Stone, uh, which has uh, the Doctor and Amy uh, basically being intercepted by uh, River Song, and uh, them going to capture one weeping angel that was on the Byzantium. But it turns out to be, well, a lot more than just a single weeping angel. Um, this is actually pretty interesting. Um... It was better than I remembered. It did make a few changes to the Weeping Angels. Um, they explained them pretty well, though. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, I think so. I don't like the changes that fans considered wrong were actually explained by how weak the angels were. Yeah, I don't like the next snapping angels, but they gave uh, some explanation for it. Uh, and you also do get to see a little bit of a different side of the 11th Doctor here, because he is a little, um, you know, a you know, Amy even commented that he was grumpy. And uh, so it's a help, you know, and I think the 11th Doctor is stereotypically just this sort of bouncy, bouncy, uh, um, doctor, and you know, the 12th is considered to be, you know, far more grumpier, but you know, I think it's a reminder it's the same person, and they all had their uh, grumpy moments, uh, though some are better at hiding that, than others. Um, but it was uh, a very uh, solid performance from Matt Smith. It was actually the first story he recorded was uh, this uh, two-parter. Uh, and he did really good. And, uh, of course, Karen Gillian as Amy looked, you know, really, really young in this episode. Uh, you commented on that. Yes, she did. And, uh, and I think she put in a a so solid performance as a somewhat and again I think it was interesting to see she's obviously a bit naive at this point um, as well as just um, uh, a little bit over Ed because the thing is she really gets put through the ringer in this episode but the it's hard to feel sorry for her because the doctor actually offered for her to stay in the TARDIS. And she's like, I'm not staying in the TARDIS. And so as a result, she ends up with the weeping angel in, their, in her eye. And, um... Well, you have to remember, she was pretty naive at this time, so it wasn't like 
she understood what she would be get fully understood what she would be getting into if she got off the TARDIS. To her, it was just a planet as a planet. She didn't really get what how dangerous it truly would be. Um. Yeah. I. I, I suppose there's that. In terms of River Song, she has some interesting uh, moments, and of course, she did have that annoying moment that I really don't like, where she said that the reason uh, that the um, TARDIS makes the noise is because the doctor's not working the brake properly, and it's like, oh come on, we've heard everybody's TARDIS, and it all goes. <sighs> Well, honey, that half makes sense. See, when he's stopping the TARDIS and it's making that noise and he's left the brake on, duh, oh, duh, he's left the brake on. Who would think to turn the brake off when they're stopping? The question is, why does he have the brake on when he's starting? Well, somebody tried to suggest Moffat was being facetious, but he shouldn't be that facetious, particularly when it's implied that um, it's going to, you know, that that's something that actually happens, and it happens in the story logic. And there's an interesting dynamic between the 11th Doctor and River. This is their first meeting from the 11th Doctor's perspective. And he is not liking having someone around who knows more about the future than he does, particularly when it's his future. And plus, basically, he has the idea from his from his perspective, his previous meeting with River, that um, they are going to be married. So it's kind of this feeling of you know, being stuck in this thing where it's just fated to happen uh, regardless of what you think and perhaps even trying to resist that a little bit. Yeah, his personality generally doesn't like being boxed in, tied down, uh, forced into something. He likes to keep his options. They generally want it, you know, so that type of thing's going to make him a little rep- little leery or tender, you know. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, like, like I said, I, I think it's it's certainly an interesting dynamic with uh, those characters. I was kind of um, unsure about the whole paramilitary uh, church thing. It was nice that unlike in Series 6, they weren't the villains, but there wasn't a whole lot of reason for a bishop to be leading uh, clerics and probably makes very little sense in terms of the punishment of River Song. Essentially, she committed a murder that everyone assumed happened in the 21st century. And as a result of that, she was locked up in prison 3,000 years later. Yeah. Not to mention the whole Blood holes, river song storyline has blood holes. So large you could drive a universe through it. And of course, you're referring to the fact that the cracks in time were erased and removed from time. Yet, River Song went to this story after the events of the Pandora opens in the Big Bang from her perspective. 
And the only thing that I can think of is, you know, it's like that example from The Flash, where even though Ebard Thawne was erased from time, in order for time to um, move along, Ebard Thawne still had to show up. The original one, not the one that replaced Wells. Uh-huh. That didn't make any sense either. Well, at least it has precedent in not making sense. If you don't make sense together, then you make a little bit of sense, at least in being nonsensical together in relation to yourself creating a precedent for your nonsense. Sure, if her timeline was a part of the Flash's universe... Well, it can work in any time travel universe. That time's got... No, no, it doesn't. Each one has their own rules. You have to... You can only look at the precedence on Doctor Who. It has to be internally consistent. You can't pull precedence from another time travel world. It has to be consistent with the rules of its own universe and own time travel rules. Well, it, it can have the same rules as the fire. Oh, no, not unless it's established. And or, how did she get here from the Pandorica? How, how, did, how did she go cross back across into this old universe? Why would she do this? I mean, you could try and say that... You could try to say that... There was a future of the old universe that got erased, but had still happened. They just happened, didn't happen to, had gotten to that point yet when everything blew up. And that she came from that point, and that she came here from the old future of the old universe. And that would kind of make things internally sort of inconsistent. But then you would still have the issue of they are not covering when the new universe, when there were no longer cracks in time and they had used this, and if this, these things were still happening and the new had still happened in the new universe in some fashion, too. Which you would have to have had it, a par- you would have to have it that some parallel and then again because otherwise where did she in the new universe where did she go from here and why do you see what I'm saying and how did this how would the story have gone down in the new universe without the cracks in time. Well, I guess that's where the time remnants idea does come in, where the way the story ends, it'd be very hard for it to end that way without the cracks in time. I will say that in their defense in Series 7, Moffat establishes that the cracks in time were a result of the Time Lords trying to get out, and that there were still, you know, uh, cracks in time, so... maybe this was one that was still there or had been opened uh, even after the Big Bang. So maybe we could go with that. Um, At at any rate, the other thing to talk about is the ending where the doctor takes uh, Amy back to her bedroom from and she shows him her wedding dress 
and uh, then starts trying to make out with the doctor. Um, Trauma bonding. I, I could see that. She was like, put through the ringer in this episode. Plus, I think she was obviously having some questions about her marriage to... Um, Rory was still somewhat uncomfortable for convenient to, you know, basically suggest something like that with a, like a one-night stand with the doctor. I was kind of leery about that because it seems to me most women aren't really thinking about a one-night stand. Well, you know, maybe times have changed, but my, the most of the girl, women I knew, you know, even the ones that you know, did that outside of marriage, there was always a hope for something permanent. Yeah, and I think it does um, reflect a criticism of Moffat that too often his... Or at least long term. Yeah. um, That he does tend to overly sexualize uh, some of his uh, female characters. Um... But beyond that... uh, It's not normal for a woman to, you know, casual sex is not normal for a woman. Our natural behavior is nesting and wanting something permanent lasting. And I like to think that's normal for guys, too. Um, I know there are certain personality types where it doesn't work that way, but, you know, for same personality types... (laughs) Well, I, I'm, I, I'm just really biased to it being normal for humans to want to find somebody to settle down with in some fashion. I mean, obviously, in some, there not everyone's going to feel the way we do about marriage, but it, it does seem like the normal human mode is to look for a partner to settle down with in some fashion. Right. I, I think that... Um it, you know, I, I think that it's certainly not that case for every man, and it's certainly not that case for every man throughout seasons of uh, life. And I think it's definitely unfortunate for society, but... It just seems to me that there's a sense of brokenness when there isn't that permanent, sincere, at least very long-term commitment. And you can see the person trying, most of the time, trying to, I'm fine, everything's fine, I love it this way, I love my life, but there's very much a sense of brokenness. Yeah. And you can watch them closely, you almost suspect that deep down they know it. Right. Well, you did like the doctor's reaction to Amy's... um Yes. Yes, I love the way he handled it. And it's like... Aw, in his mind, she's still the little girl. Well, comparatively to most, for most, uh, comparatively, everybody is a little kid uh, compared I to know, his but age. but he met her when she was a little girl. So in this case, since he met when he met her, she was a little girl. He and he still feels a way about her, feels about her the same way he did when she was a little girl. Uh, I think that's an interesting insight because even though for Amy it's been years and years and years, you know, for the doctor it was just, you know, um, minutes between um, uh, 
uh, trips, even though 12 years have passed. So, you know, it wasn't like more than probably a couple weeks that he met this little girl who is now coming on to him. So, yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of the doctor's reaction. And I think the doctor does show a great deal of decency. I think in this episode and the next one, but it gets played, I think, pretty well. But anyway, back to this episode. Overall thoughts? Um, I liked it, and it was better than I remembered. A lot of suspense. Uh, a great uh, little uh, moment by Matt Smith that I appreciated more the second time around when he gave his uh, the one thing you never try to uh, uh, trap. Uh, speech. Um, I appreciate that more the second time around. So I give this one eight Tardises out of ten. Did I see that coming a mile away the first time around too? I forget. Um, I, I think I, I initially kind of associated this doctor because he didn't look so very tough and was so very young. Felt a need to give big speeches, but I. I don't necessarily view it that way on second viewing. So, what's your overall rating on the episode? Mm, eight and a half. Eight and a half. Okay. Well, we move on now to... Uh, Wait. I gave it an eight. Oh. And we're on to the librarians and the rule of three, which finds them at a science fair where evil magic is afoot. And this one was, it was kind of interesting. Um, one thing I, I, I liked about it was the idea that the evil magic was actually being um, used through an app. Um, that, ev that, you know, evil has an app. You want to... Uh, become a tool of evil magical forces there's an app for that um i think it was a it was a surprise because i i told i told you what i thought was going to happen like 20 minutes in and i turned out to be mostly wrong because i th what did you think was going to happen i thought it was going to be the uh super competitive mom who was actually um, behind the uh, ma the magical attacks that were occurring on people at the science fair, and it turned out to be something completely different. Um, and I just got totally surprised; did not see that coming at all. So the redhead did it. Sexist um, color type. Or whatever it's stated. Yeah, that it's just totally discriminatory and negative stereotype of my people. There have been. We are not vampires. We are not witches. We are not anything necessarily evil at all. Simply because of our hair color. Well, look, there are good red-haired characters. Um. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Your average redhead is either a ditz like a blonde, extremely uh, temperamental, and with a huge temper, or a witch, or a vampire, or... 
something. Or she betrays her friends. Because everyone knows we're not as good at handling pain. And she's sick. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of brunette male villains in TV shows and movies. And I don't complain about that. Redheads are more com or often portrayed more negatively often more often than is representative. You gonna start some sort of lobby on this? You need a catchy hashtag. Um, better red than dead. Um, red lives matter. Okay. Except that's not quite the issue. Yeah. I don't think people are actually more prone to shoot us or anything. Well, I mean, with them thinking you might be a witch or a vampire or something, I mean... That's the thing. We're portrayed that way, you know. We're portrayed more evil in fiction. But I don't feel see like people... Very few people actually have made this type of, you know, I've not encountered that type of discrimination and stereotyping in real life. It's just a, but in the media. Then, if it's not affecting you in real life, it's just an annoyance. Because... Maybe it isn't. I've just, you know, maybe people are just less obvious about it in real life because, you know... They're afraid you're a vampire. Well... I think there's also a sense that, you know, saying that out loud, honey, really. What? I mean, most people know that vampires and witches, etc. aren't real. Yeah, well... That they might still have this generally negative association and... From all of these negative portrayals, and not even be consciously aware of where it's coming from to formulate anything, and we're more likely to just, as, especially as a woman, and these are primarily these portrayals are primarily of red-haired negative portrayals are primarily specific to red-haired women. We're more likely just to assume it was because of our gender. No, no, no. We, the hobgoblins are red. I assume that we're being. You're, so we assume that they're being sexist when it could actually be that the person's not sexist so much as they're discriminatory about their hair color. And we just never thought of that. Ladies, if you buy red hair coloring, you are taking on a world of pain and sorrow. Any? Yes. Well, that's what you're saying. I'm being facetious a little bit. Well, it, if there is any issue at all, it's a part of it's a part of sexism, actually, because, like I said, these are specific portrayals of red-haired women. I don't. There aren't as many negative portrayals of red-haired men. Norman Osborn. That's one. How many red-haired characters, male characters, can you think of? Um, Harry Osborn. Well, they're not really red-haired. Yeah, they are red-haired. Ralph Mouth. Who? The guy, the, the guy from Happy Days. You know, who's... 
uh, unfunny and that sort of, you know, villain, not, okay, not really, but... I don't even, uh, even remember the character. Well, he would say things like, sit on it, Potsy! So perhaps we're getting a bit far afield here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Jacob, in any case, you went clear back to Happy Days trying to find somebody. Hey! Okay. So. <laughs> um, anyway, I also thought the. Back to the librarians. I also thought the episode provided some good insights uh, on, Cass- on uh, Cassandra as a former. Um, science fair uh, kid slash champion before her um, uh, another thought in your mention of the Osborns having red hair is that is not the fact they're the fact that the comic book characters are originally kind of portrayed as a reddish brown was not considered a very important feature they usually are portrayed by just brown haired actors nobody bothers to dye the guys red but every time an actress is hired to play Mary Jane, uh, they dye her, they, have, they have to dye her hair red if it isn't red already. Because that is, cause it is a considered important feature of the woman, what her hair color is. But the male roles, they very rarely, they just hire an actor and... They've, it's very less common for them to actually dye, make the male actors dye their hair to match. Okay, we're going back. We're going back to the librarians, but I want to say this: just one thing, that when it comes to stereotypes, you have every single negative female, um, red-haired villain, and then you have Mary Jane Watson. That kind of balances everything out. Anyway. Not really. What is her personality type? Um, we, we will get on to that another day. Let's get back to the librarian. Yes. What did I mention? The other uh, <laughs> cliche and stereotype. Okay, let's just get back to the librarians and talking about that. I would just like once to see a shy, quiet, mousy redhead portrayed in fiction. Because, you know, some of them are. Yeah, um, but mousy people, mousy is generally something we associate with brunettes. You don't really see mousy blondes either. Okay. Annie, but there are introverted females who are blonde, and there are introverted females who have red hair. Okay, okay. Thank, I get the point. Can we please get, we're talking about the librarians. <laughs> okay. So, I like the the way they worked in the insights to Cassandra, and then I think to Stone as well, when he was talking um, about hiding his interest uh, in poetry. I, I, I thought it was a, just a, a beautiful little uh, insight, just worked into the script, and it did, uh, I think, make the character seem... Uh, more real and relatable. And we continue to get lots of great clues about Jensen, who I I think has grown to kind of this just annoying guy who happens... Have you ever had any interests that you felt the need to hide? Yes. What were they? 
if if I told about them, I wouldn't be hiding them. But I can relate. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was. You could tell me off air. Uh, perhaps another time. Okay. Um, and I think that because Jensen, I think when you get into the second episode of the series, he just looks like some prissy um, secondary character. But I think as the episode, you know, as the season wears on, it becomes imp- uh, critical that there is a lot more to him. And this episode uh, shows that as they do have the encounter with Morgan Le Fay. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of had to do something with him because of, as he was irritating and unlikable. Well, I, I think they had this whole plot arc planned for him. And, of course, the Morgan Le Fay stuff really does set the stage for a big seri- uh, season finale. We're seven episodes into this ten-episode season. And I, I'm like, yeah, th- this is, looks like this is going to go somewhere. And uh, it definitely is doing the right things to keep uh, my interest. Um... So, uh, any other thoughts on that episode? If he's a knight of the round table, is the other guy Merlin? Um. Or. Bob Newhart's uh, character. Mm hmm. Um. I don't know. They're, I guess, going to keep some mystery. Uh, plus, uh, Bob Newhart doesn't appear the rest of this series, uh, so he hasn't reappeared, uh, and he said his final goodbye in the second episode. So, um, uh, Judson um, was a very old, um, apparently thousands of years old, and whether they'll ever explore his backstory further um, remains to be seen. They haven't in the rest of this series or into season two. So, a lot of uh, um, questions, and um, I, I found it pretty enjoyable. I'll give this one seven librarians out of ten. Yeah, it was okay. I'm usually not, it kind of edged dangerously close to the type of magic I really don't like. Wouldn't touch with a ten foot pole, so maybe a six. All right. Well, we move on to um, Doctor Who fractures from Titan uh, Comics. Um, this is uh, the twelfth Doctor Adventures. Um, I like this. I like the cover on this. Uh, really a nice bright blue, which is a bit of a change because they uh, tried to do. I think. Each Doctor's is uh, for the 10th, 11th, 12th, and even the 9th, uh, just kind of in a similar pose. And this has uh, two different stories. Uh, And I think both of them feel like they could have been on TV. Um, Fractures uh, is a a story that uh, deals with alternate universes. Which is something uh, new who is kind of shunned, uh, except for like a, a few episodes in series two. 
Um, but it's essentially about a guy who is about a guy who is dead in one universe, inventing a machine. Uh, he's alive in his universe. He invents a, a machine to come to um, to the doctor's universe, where he's where the alternate uni- where that universe version of him has died. So he's trying to be reunited with his family. Who has died in his universe, but they're alive in Doctor Who's universe. Yeah, and of course he has uh, opposition. Um, and I, f- I was reading this, it felt like something even could have been done in the Davies era. And I think Robbie Morrison really does a good job of capturing the character of the it 12th Doctor. It kind of was done in the first few uh, series. Remember when they got Rose's parents back together? Oh. Spoilers! Really old spoilers! And, of course, really old spoilers uh, relates to the fact that um, Tom Sawyer didn't really die. Um, but yeah, it's, it's weird doing spoilers for something yeah, about... Romeo and Juliet ends with them committing suicide. Yeah. Okay. Did I make my point? Yes. I mean, that's a really old spoiler. And the tortoise. And I just spoil the play for you. Well, it's the journey, and of course, the tortoise does beat the hare. Okay. Um. So. Uh, you're right. There is some similarity, but the it it mixes this idea. You have uh, people who are trying to stop them from crossing universes, and have got amazing powers whom the doctor has got to thwart. Um. And I think in both these stories, they did a good job just getting the character of the Twelfth Doctor in there. Uh, the somewhat, you know, the very grumpy, but still with uh, still with genuine caring that does end up coming out in the story. And the second one, Gangland, is interesting, and it does feel like a really, like a Stephen Moffat thing. As they go and meet knockoffs of the... Rat Pack, i.e. the Wolf Pack, where essentially they don't want to pay licensing rights to the families of Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, and Dean Martin. So instead... I was wondering who the Wolf Pack was and whether I should have remembered this band. No, it was basically a ripoff of the Rat Pack. And, um, it's a, uh... What did the Rat Pack do instead of howling? Um, I don't think they had any specific, um, call. It was just a nickname. They weren't, like, a formal band. They were just a bunch of guys who were considered very cool, who hung around with each other. I think they may have performed together a few times. Um... But it's a uh, it's an interesting piece, and it has a Moffat era sort of twist with this time gun that the uh, 
that the doctor gets into a battle with an alien uh, creature uh, over. It's a very high-stakes setup, and I think it uh, I think it works pretty well, and it's an intriguing and fun story. Um, I do think the part with the boxer um, worked into the story. I just thought of something, like at this time when you mentioned the time gun, when the angels fell through the crack in time, and they no longer existed. Shouldn't all the people they had killed come back? Um, I think that time, that it time tr doesn't necessarily fix all of that. I guess, and <laughs> you should have thought about that thirty minutes ago. It just don't occur to me. Okay, well, just add that to the plot holes. It doesn't change rating for me anyway. Um, but I found this book pretty fun. I didn't care as much for the first one, but this is pretty solid entertainment, and it does capture the Twelfth Doctor nicely. Clara gets some good moments, I think, particularly in the second story. Um, so I think Fractures is a is an enjoyable book. Um, I would give it seven and a half out uh, Tardises out of ten. Just seven. All right, and now on to some Big Finish audio dramas. Next up, we have uh, uh, Primeval, which finds Nyssa deadly ill and the Doctor traveling back in time to Trocken. Uh, for those who aren't acquainted with the classic series, Trocken was destroyed in the big finale to se uh, season 18, Legopolis. But they went back. But in this episode, they go back in time to. Uh, thousands of years before Nissa's time to consult with a great physician there. She's not really able to help, so they're left to turn towards a malevolent being for help. What could go wrong? Uh, this uh, story does provide some really interesting uh, backstory and setup regarding Trocken, with a few twists as the story goes on, as well as a few revealing moments for members of the council. I will say uh, that... Uh, there are some hints of uh, religious antagonism uh, in the story. As Nyssa uh, says that things weren't perfect on Trocken at this point because they had uh, religion. And this kind of reflects the uh, fact, and I think I've observed that when Gary Russell was the executive uh, producer at the start of Big Finish, uh, and also before a New Who came, there tended to be uh, more episodes and stories that were outright hostile uh, towards uh, religion. This one is fairly minor, and I think is still a good story regardless, but be advised, I'll give this one 7 Tardises out of 10. Next up, we have Knight's Black Agent. And this one is from the Sixth Doctor and Jamie uh, trilogy. It's a companion chronicle related to it, told from Jamie about an adventure at the, with the Sixth Doctor that was set between the first and second stories of the trilogy, between City of Spires and Wreck of the Titan. They return after the events of City of Spires to reclaim the TARDIS, only to find that a erstwhile... Uh, a minister slash landowner has taken possession of it. Of course, the minister is not all he seems, not at all, but a very dangerous blackguard 
who captures the doctor, and it's up to Jamie to save him. Uh, I found this this was okay. It definitely held my attention, and uh, it provided some fun insights into Jamie's characters, as well as uh, showing him dealing with a uh, temptation. I'm a huge fan of Jamie uh, McCrimmon, second favorite companion of all time, and as such, I really enjoyed it. And I'll give that one a seven Tardis out of uh, Tardises out of ten. Then we turn to Legend of the Cybermen, which finds the Doctor and Jamie in the conclusion of the trilogy, back in the land of fiction where they were in the Mind Robbers and fighting an invasion of Cybermen. This one, you really would benefit by seeing the Mind Robbers first because it ties right into that story and it gives you a full grounding of what's going on. But I saw the Mind Robbers and loved it uh, to death. And this is one case where a sequel really does stand up as a great follow-up to the original rather than some sort of pale imitation. As we're in the land of fiction, we get to have... All sorts of uh, characters in there. You have Count Dracula and the Artful Dodger and Alice Little from Alice in Wonderland. And then, you know, you have the symbol of uh, craziness when you have to deal with the Hispaniola from Treasure Island taking the Doctor and friends across a body of water only to encounter a cyber-converted Moby Dick, and then the only thing that can save them is the intervention of Captain Nemo on the Nautilus. These are great fictional characters you could never get into Doctor Who otherwise, and it's just a fun romp. But at the same time, there are some serious character uh, explorations with Jamie, as well as with Zoe, who reappears this story. This is really a great payoff for the entire trilogy. And since the stories are interlinked, I I recommend all of them, even though Wreck of the Titan was a little uh, perfunctory. This one, though, is the cream of the crop, and I will give it a strong, hearty nine tortoises out of ten. Well, that's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. From Boise, Idaho, this is Adam. And Andrew Graham. Signing off. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.